Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida folk musician, journalist, and photographer Pete Gallagher. Just to see uh, the pictures, even when I've done this, the slideshow myself, it's kind of amazing to me that the, what a loss it would have been. A look at Jonathan Dickinson's journal. No one was uh, was eaten, although, according to the, to the journal, uh, they were certainly mistreated. Exploring prehistoric Indian mounds in Tomoka State Park, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Tom Gaskin saw fish eating creek in 1933's clear water giant gar and a million cypress knees faces on the tree marks tall ships in dead pine roots knees that look like ballet feet and a man in a business suit he'd toss you a chunk of swamp wood say what do you think about that well that's a wood hippopotamus with a Carmen Miranda hat every day for 60 years he stood o'er this domain cussing at developers and the folks who came from Maine his eyes were always searching for that divine special need that looked like Charlton Heston spread part the old Red Sea he put the rest in a museum charge a dollar to get in a dollar in 1951 folk musician Tom Pete Gallagher Gaskin has been performing for more than 40 years. Gallagher is also a respected journalist, photographer, and environmental activist. On Friday evening, November 8th, all of Pete Gallagher's talents will come together for a multimedia event at Thursby Hall in historic Cocoa Village as he performs Florida folk music and presents his rare Seminole tribe photography. Heavy hors d'oeuvres, beer, wine, and gourmet desserts will be served. Pete Gallagher hosts a Florida folk music radio show on WMNF in Tampa, so I asked him to describe what Florida folk music is. It doesn't really have to be a song about Florida. It doesn't have to be a um, someone who's from Florida. It's to me, it's something that gives you the soul of Florida. You know, um, a lot of people write about uh, Tennessee and Appalachia and uh, this and that. Um, I we I try to encourage people to look around Florida. Write about your state. What 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 is the uh, the air that you breathe? You live down here. What's the air that you breathe? What's the land that you walk on? Uh, who are the women that you look at? We're, they're Florida. What about them? What about them? If you sit down to write a love song, instead of Okeechobee, instead of Tennessee, why don't you put it in Okeechobee? You know, I mean, some, you know, uh, not not to be uh, trite about it or anything like that. And um, there's a lot of uh, Florida folk songs that people wouldn't even consider Florida folk songs. You know, um, a lot of the, a lot of Tom Petty songs, a lot of Jimmy Buffett songs. Um, uh, Jimmy Buffett, you know, I mean, one of the great Florida songwriters. So the Pirate Looks at 40 has got to be in the top 10 of all Florida songs um, of all time. Stephen Foster, you know, uh, uh, way down upon the Suwannee River, you know, was a, he was a world-famous pop songwriter, 
He wasn't from Florida, but uh, he wrote a great song. It's our state song. Pete Gallagher has been performing at the Florida Folk Festival every year since 1972. He says that Florida folk music helps to preserve our history and culture. I first knew about it in uh, 71. Uh, I had a professor named Don Grooms at the University of Florida. And I come to find out, I walked in his office one day, he taught broadcasting, and there was a guitar leaning there against his desk, and we started talking, and he said, you ought to come to the Florida Folk Festival. I had been, since I grew up in uh, in Rockledge there when I, in my teen years, I uh, had been playing guitar with a, my buddy Jack Piccolo, who was a banjo player, my buddy Joe Smith, who played the fiddle and the mandolin. We would get together in, at Jack's house on the bed there, and we'd play those LPs real slow to try to figure out what they were doing. We decided, well, heck, let's go up there. And we went up there and uh, got up on the stage and, and played a couple tunes. And uh, uh, I think it's still the same today. It really is. Uh, they have new groups that come up there. They give them a chance uh, to get up on stage. Guys like Frank Thomas that have a long stage set will bring brand-new people up and give part of his time for them to uh, show what they can do. And then there's, of course, a lot of uh, music in the campground. The campground is just for the musicians and volunteers. And so... Um, there's music going on 24-hour, 24-7. There's that thing. It's a three-day, three essentially three-day festival. Memorial Day weekend, you know, last weekend in May every year. Pete Gallagher is also well-known as a respected writer and journalist. Perhaps his most important work in journalism was helping to expose the Rosewood tragedy in the Seminole Tribune. In January 1923, the African-American town of Rosewood was burned to the ground as the residents fled, never to return. Pete Gallagher, along with another investigative journalist, Charles Flowers, tracked down the Rosewood Massacre survivors. Gallagher explains how his quest began. For a period of time there, I was kind of managing, semi-managing the career of a, of a blues singer named Diamond Teeth Mary. I had, I had a call. It's odd how this connected up, but I had a call from uh, uh, Peggy Bolger, who at the time was uh, the director of the Florida Folk Festival. She went on to become uh, uh, one of the top... Uh, folk experts in the Smithsonian. And um, she asked me what I, I, I lived in St. Pete, uh, Diamond Teeth Mary uh, lived in Bradenton. Uh, Peggy had discovered that she was still around. Would I give her a ride? I was the closest one. So I, I had my little daughter with me and we gave her a ride. Um, her, she didn't tell me her name was Diamond Teeth Mary. She said, this woman's a gospel singer, Mary Smith McLean. And as we were driving up, I had a tape recorder and I had my daughter hold the, the microphone to her. And I interviewed her because I figured I'd go back and do a story about it to the St. Pete Times, who I was working for at the time. And uh, she come to tell me she was a blues singer. She was Diamond Teeth Mary, the sister of Bessie Smith and all this stuff. So, wow. Um, so I, <clears throat> I got to know her. I have. I came back and got a bunch of guys together that became a band for her. And she used to play in St. Pete, and I'd let her spend the night at a, at a lady's house uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the hood. And... Uh, um, Turned out that this lady was a Rosewood survivor. She was one of the little kids that were put on a train in um, in uh, uh, Cedar Key and taken to Jacksonville and taken to Gainesville and uh, never ever went back again and uh, never saw her family again. A primary focus of Pete Gallagher's work has been the preservation of Florida's natural environment. As development has continued in Florida over the past 40 years, Gallagher believes environmental awareness has also increased. It has because there's been notable examples over the years of environmentalists uh, rising up to stop some, some kind of type of bad project like the Cross Florida Barge Canal. But then you've got to be vigilant all the time. 
and uh, it, it can really get you down. I, I, I have a song that I do called, uh, I call it Chuckalusky, that, that was written from this frustration because I, I was down in this little town at the very extreme southwest corner of, uh, of uh, southwest Florida, and uh, uh, there's this little fishing town, beautiful little town, but uh, you go to the post office, and on the wall they've got, uh, you know, placards up there advertising real estate. Here was a picture of a of an old trailer with a dog sleeping in front of it, and the front steps had, had rotten away, and um, it was a mobile home, and the windows were broken out, and the washing machine was in the front yard, and weeds were growing out of it, and the price tag was $3.1 million because of the land that it was on was so valuable, and I thought, man. So this song basically takes the point that, uh, you know, uh, soon, soon one day it'll all, man will take it all away, but... There's nothing wrong. You shouldn't have to feel guilty with going down to Chuckalusky, and there's still a little boy out there fishing. There's still the crab traps lined up on the shore. Um, still people making their living as shrimpers and crabbers. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that, even though you know that it's going away. It's a difficult thing to grasp. When you grow up in Florida, you spend your entire, like I did, you spend your entire life watching things go away. And then years later, when I became a writer, I'm talking from the time I was a kid. And um, <clears throat> years later, when you uh, you revisit uh, all these places, you get a real sadness, um, nostalgia, and sadness. That's you know, and that, it goes. It's the same with anybody anywhere, but in Florida particularly, because things things come up and go away so fast. Come listen, school children, the story I will tell. How the rivers of North Florida. All went to hell When they drained the water From the head to the mouth To quench the thirst of paradise Way down south The Swanee River Used to flow free That was until the year 2023 When they laid a pipeline through the tree and sucked all her water down to Miami. Pete Gallagher has a long history with the Seminole Tribe of Florida, working closely with Chief James Billy for many years. Gallagher explains how he met Chief Billy. I knew James Billy, the chairman, as a musician. He's a, he was a musician. In those early days at the Florida Folk Festival, he was always up there, and I knew him in that uh, sense. He killed a Florida Panther. At the time, I was the president of, of Save the Florida Panther. And it was like really bizarre to me that he would do that. It didn't seem to fit what I considered to be the Indian thing, you know. And, uh, and I remember um, I was backstage one night at the, at the Florida Folk Festival. Uh, and so I'd heard him um, laughing and joking about it, about killing the Panther. And it just uh, it bothered me. And so um, I went back to the campfire that night with my other guys in the band, and we created a, a dirge for the panther. Because the next night I was on right before him, so I know he would see it, hear it. I, did, I got the whole crowd humming along with a, some sort of a pro progression. And um, next thing I know, I was uh, uh, at the meetings. I, I met one of his associates, a uh, young girl that worked for him, she was representing the Seminole tribe at the Panther meetings, and she saw me taking notes and 
one thing led to another, and I got a call from her one day, and she said, the, the chairman wants to meet with you at his camp out in the swamp. So I got my buddy Charlie Cook, who was the uh, curator of animals at Walt Disney World, and Ralph Heath, who was the uh, had the Suncoast Seabird Sanctuary, and the three of us went down there. And we spent three days uh, drinking a little wine, playing a lot of guitar, uh, riding in swamp buggies, and meanwhile he, he told his story to us during that time of why he did what he did. And it made a lot of sense to me. It was the first panther he had ever seen in all of his life out in those woods out there. And he knew the medicine man needed a hook, a hook claw. And he knew that if he was to get that hook claw, that hook claw that they would use for arthritis and stuff would, would, uh, would help a, a lot of other people. And he would get a reward for this. And so he went out there and did it. Uh, and he believed at the time that the Indians could do whatever they wanted on their land. He didn't. No one had ever come in there and taught anybody about the Endangered Species Act. Pete Gallagher was hired by Chief Billy for special writing projects. When Chief Billy was ousted from power in 2001, Gallagher lost his position too. When Chief Billy returned in 2011, he brought Gallagher back with him. On November 8th, in addition to performing Florida folk music, Pete Gallagher will be presenting his rare photographs of the Seminole tribe. During his first tenure with the Seminole tribe, Pete Gallagher took tens of thousands of photographs. When he and Chief Billy were fired, those images were going to be destroyed. Somebody, I don't know who, or several people, went and took all these photographs. Anything that had James Billy in it or was associated with him in any way and put him in trash cans to, uh, to, to go out and put trash on top of it to go out into uh, the next morning's trash. And I, I went in there that night to get my stuff off my desk because my pass still worked. And uh, I was alarmed to see this. I, I noticed what was going on, and I just got a dolly, and I wheeled all those trash cans up and down the elevator and filled up my, my van with, uh, with these uh, big, heavy uh, trash cans full of, of photographs and um, took the back roads back to St. Pete. And then I had the, uh, you know, the, uh, Saint, the Seminole cops knocking on my door the next morning. I had to call the St. Pete police to get rid of them. And uh, I was covered by the uh, director of the Seminole Museum, Billy Cypress, who was a real good friend of mine. He told me, don't ever bring those back until the Jimmy James Billy comes back. I'll cover you. And he, he told them that, uh, that he had the pictures that I had dropped them off with him. And, of course, James Billy knew about it, but they were the only two. In the meantime, I, I kept those things in temperature control for all those 10 years. I mean, moved moved them around from one apartment to the other and uh, had them, half of them in my house. And it's just, it was constantly a worry for me. And then when we, when we got back in, that was one of the first things we did was get a grant from the Department of the Interior to digit. These were all prints and slides and negatives in the days before digital. To, to digitize these, which we did. And it turned out to be 160,000 images. And the, the show that I was, I'm going to do on the 8th is only photos from the first 30,000 that we've been able to go through and start an identification process. When it's all over, um, any tribal member will be able to go onto the computer and put in keywords and have their uncles and aunts and grandmothers come up, all the pictures of them, and, you know, print them out just like... Uh, so it's a fascinating project, but it's going to be years in the in the uh, again accomplishing all that. But still, it, uh, uh, just just to see 
uh, the pictures. Even when I've done this, the slideshow myself, it's kind of amazing to me that the, what a loss it would have been. Florida folk musician, journalist, and photographer Pete Gallagher will be presenting a multimedia event on Friday evening, November 8th at Thursby Hall in historic Cocoa Village. This intimate gathering has very limited seating and reservations are required. Go to myfloridahistory.org for more information. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to make a reservation for An Evening with Pete Gallagher and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. More than 300 years ago, John Dickinson and his family were stranded when their ship wrecked on the east coast of Florida. Right, in uh, September, actually September 23rd of 1696, uh, the Bark Reformation wrecked um, near present-day uh, Hobe Sound on the east coast of Florida. Uh, and on board uh, was a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Dickinson. He was uh, English, and he was actually born in Jamaica, uh, and he, w- he and his family, his wife and their young uh, six-month-old child, were traveling to Philadelphia. They were actually moving their business uh, to Philadelphia, uh, and on the way, unfortunately, which uh, at that time often happened on the east coast of Florida, they were struck by a storm uh, and wrecked, wrecked on the east coast of Florida. Now, this experience was documented in a book by Jonathan Dickinson. Now it's generally referred to as his journal, but originally it had a very long title. Right. Uh, so after um, this, this harrowing experience, so they spent four months essentially uh, living with, uh, and actually at one point they were held captive by some of the uh, native tribes that lived in Florida, but it took them four months to eventually make it back to Philadelphia. They did, uh, of course, eventually make it back. Uh, and uh, within a couple of years, Jonathan Dickinson decided to write down uh, his his memories of this expedition. And in 1699, uh, the Society of Friends, which is the religious group most uh, commonly referred to as the Quakers in Philadelphia, decided to uh, to publish his. Uh, his recollections of that journey. And you're right, the original title, we now, of course, refer to it as John, uh, Dickinson's Journal or Jonathan Dickinson's Journal, but the original title is is incredibly long. Uh, it's actually, uh, it was originally entitled, God's Protecting Providence, Man's Surest Help and Defense in Times of the Greatest Difficulty and Most Eminent Danger, evidenced in the remarkable deliverance of Robert Barrow, with divers, other persons, from the devouring waves of the sea, amongst which they suffered shipwreck, and also from the cruel, devouring jaws of the inhumane cannibals of Florida, faithfully related by one of the persons concerned therein, Jonathan Dickinson. And it's really interesting, on the title page, uh, certain words are uh, in very bold letters, and of course, cannibals of Florida, uh, that, that phrase is, is very uh, prominently uh, depicted on the title page. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think anybody from the party was actually eaten, although it was a uh, uh, harrowing experience for them. Right. Yeah. No. No one was uh, was eaten. Although, um, according to the to the journal, uh, they were uh, uh, 
certainly mistreated um, by, by some of the tribes. When they first came ashore, uh, the, the group of, of Native Americans who first made contact with them pillaged the entire ship and then burned their ship, uh, stripped them of all their clothing. Uh, and, and at this time, you know, Spanish, uh, uh, Spain held Florida, and they had a, sort of had a tenuous relationship with some of the Native people, um, but the English didn't. And a lot of the, um, the Native peoples kept referring to them and asking them if they were English, but one of the uh, 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 persons in the party actually spoke Spanish, so he tried to say, oh, well, we are Spanish, we are Spanish, we're trying to get to St. Augustine. Um, but, but throughout that, um, that journey, the, the uh, uh, Native groups kept sort of harassing them and, and asking them if they were, if they were English and, and telling them that they were going to kill them. So there were a lot of threats, and they were uh, traveling really under, under um, a lot of duress uh, um, during this, this entire period. Now, here in your archive, you have a, a copy of this book that dates from 1700. Right. So like I said, the, the, the first edition was published in 1699. It was in limited printing. Um, and today we, we only know of, of seven uh, copies of that original first edition manuscript. But in 1700, um, it, because it was so popular, a number of publishers picked up the, the manuscript and, and uh, it was actually published in um, not only the United States, up in New England, but also in London. It was later translated into Dutch and German uh, uh, publications. But we actually have um, a, a, one of the second edition copies, a 1700 edition that was published in uh, in London. It's actually been rebound probably sometime in the 19th century, um, and it's in in fairly good shape. It's got the the uh, you know beautiful gold leaf uh, pages, and it's it's printed on the thick uh, um, vellum rather than you know later uh, 19th century paper. Um, and again, you can see the, the the title page is in great shape, um, and you can actually read this book, you know, quite easily. Although the the language is a little bit a little bit cumbersome to get through, but it's it's a fascinating read. Um, and and like I said, the the, the copy we have in the archive is um, not as rare as the 1699 edition, but it's still quite rare to have this um, 1700 second edition. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello of robertcasanello.com tells us about prehistoric Indian mounds in Tomoka State Park. Monument building. All those big stone temples down in South America and Central America are younger than the earthen mounds we have in the southeastern U.S., in Louisiana and Florida. So we have some of the oldest monumental architecture in the Western Hemisphere right here in Florida. This was Dr. John Indonino, lecturer of anthropology at Eastern Kentucky University. He researches Florida's prehistoric past. Right now, he's involved in a study of Indian mounds found at Tomoka State Park in Volusia County. 
You might be familiar with ancient Indian mounds that dot the Florida landscape. The mounds in Florida are distinctive because they are shell mitten. However, the mounds Dr. Indonino studies are even more distinctive. He explains. The Tomoka Mound Complex is the oldest known mound complex in northeast Florida where sand rather than shell was used to construct mounds. Shell mounds are pretty easy to spot. But what are the challenges to researching sand mounds, especially sand mounds located on the east coast of Florida, nearby Ormond and Daytona beaches? Dr. Indonino describes these challenges to us. The site is relatively well-preserved, but it's, it's in a state park, and the public does not have direct access to it. And what the work that I'm undertaking there is designed to do is pretty basic, determine how many mounds there are and determining how old they are. Back in the 1990s, uh, an archaeologist did excavations in one of the mounds and obtained a radiocarbon date, which places its initiation, the beginning of its construction, sometime between 4,800 and 4,500 years ago. They're built in a relative sand dune environment. So there's lots of little undulations and little hills in the area that could be natural. So we're trying to figure out which are natural and which are built by humans. And we're doing that through topographic mapping. And we know from previous excavations in the, in the late 19th century that at least two other mounds there did not have pottery in them is that it was generally thought up until about 20 years ago, only people who had farming and had pottery built mounds. But there's you know, incontrovertible evidence now that people before the invention of pottery, well before farming, were building mounds. If Dr. Indonino and other researchers are correct, the civilization that created these mounds would have lived during the time of the ancient Egyptian, and Mesopotamian people. Researchers are caught up in a debate as to what these different mounds meant to the ancient Indians of Florida. Uh, among archaeologists in the southeastern U.S. specifically, there, there's a debate going on about whether mounded shell, which is often interpreted as subsistence refuse, it's food trash, if those mounds made from shell are the equivalent of mounds made from sand, which are and have been viewed as monuments, as temple mounds, as mortuary mounds, as residence mounds for high-status individuals. So there's a, there's a debate going on about what exactly these represent. And the ones at Tomoka State Park, although there is a little bit of shell in them, they are mostly made from sand. And so they represent, you know, essentially monumental architecture built anywhere from 4,800 years ago to 4,500 years ago. These mounds are the monuments these ancient Indian societies left behind. Historians and anthropologists decades ago assumed that monument building was a providence of civilizations that adopted mass agriculture. But Dr. Nanino reminds us this was not always the case. These folks are hunter-gatherers. They're, they're not farming societies where you might expect to see uh, monumental architecture being constructed. These are probably egalitarian hunter-gatherers where everybody is more or less equal, but they're getting together and building these, some of them pretty impressive construction. That was Dr. John Indonino, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.